Church is a community and movement, a fellowship of discovery. We desire to love well and serve often, while together we explore the adventurous love story of Jesus. Hey, good morning. Good morning. My name is Mike. I want to welcome you uh, to our community if this is your first time. Hello, how great is it to have 70 degree weather in December? For those of you that are native, you're used to this. For, for me, we were four years trapped in Ohio, and uh, the sunshine, the heat, it's glorious. Bless you, Tennessee, bless you. May God pour out his blessings upon us in the form of sunshine. Um, if you were here last week, we are um, in a series of conversations talking about strength in uh, weakness or power in weakness. And um, although this is very clearly a biblical value, it's not so much an American value. And so we've been exploring how the scripture portrays the fact that God is often most present at the end of our rope when our power is indeed limited. And last week, we asked our, our community to just r- go to the stations around the room and to write down things that they lament, um, things that uh, represent areas of brokenness or frailty or neediness or helplessness. And um, not shockingly, uh, this family is super honest. And so we got a, a bunch of things in. And I just wanted to share a few of them with you because it kind of frames where we're going to go this morning in terms of our topic. Go ahead, Sarah, if you would. I'm just going to read some of these really quickly. I lament not having the picture-perfect life and family. I lament my depression, my anxiety, feelings that I'm not good enough. I lament guilt and shame, feeling like I have no purpose, always feeling like an outsider. That in my insecurities and immaturity, I hurt those I love most. I lament my childlessness, not being a perfect parent. My struggle with mental illness and anxiety, a lack of contentment, jealousy of what others have, inability to provide stability for my family, I lament my struggle to believe, my jealousy of those with wealth, worrying about what others think of me, my temper, my anxiety and depression, me and all suffering from alcoholism, doubt and uncertainty, my relationship with my mother, my distrust in you, God, my anorexia, the empty chair at our Thanksgiving table. I lament finding significance and pleasure in the world and not solely in you, Jesus. I lament growing old. I lament my mental health and how it affects others. I lament my marriage, being jobless, soon to be homeless and unsure of where to go. I lament in walking away from you, addiction, anger, depression, anxiety. I lament pretending to be the perfect companion, but not fully forgiving and bringing up the past. I lament the loss of our dreams as a couple. I lament my loneliness and depression, being selfish and hurting my family. I lament pornography being selfish, my loneliness, pornography, greed, selfishness. I lament my marriage and my inability to see her pain. I lament my insecurity and self-doubt. I lament the need for constant approval. I lament believing I do not deserve or am not worthy of happiness. I lament my ideas of myself and thinking that I'm a failure or a clown. I lament that I don't belong anywhere. I lament my apathy, depression, anxiety, loneliness, singleness, tiredness, overwhelming lack of desire to do much of anything. Right? And I, and, and I don't know about you, I find myself in several of those. 
And so what we wanted to talk a little bit about this morning is, okay, one huge step for authentic Jesus-following life is being honest about the reality of our lives, right? It's not always, and that's a train, just in case you were wondering if my stomach was growling. Um, I'm hungry, but not that hungry. That is a train. Um, Because I I think we find ourselves uh, simultaneously um, carrying both great things and gifts of God that are glorious and awesome, and then things that are really hard and really difficult. And living with, in both kind of spaces together in tension is a really difficult thing. And Paul, when you go, oh, I, I got to fire up the iPad, I'm sorry. I got, I got used to Sarah running my life back there, and it was awesome. This, when you get to Paul, hold on a second here, ladies and gentlemen. Let me find, what is today? Okay, I got to hit the fifth, got to hit message. Got to scroll past all the laments. Do I need what? Do I I need Josh back up there more than you could possibly imagine? Yes. (laughs) Boom! Wasn't that worth it? Just right there. Just I, I pressed it and it showed up. And they say magic is not real. Um, But if you remember, this is the text we looked at last week. From Paul in 2 Corinthians, although I put 1 Corinthians, it is indeed 2 Corinthians. Remember this, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now what's another way to say that sentence? What's, a, what's one word that summarizes the answer? Hey, God, take this away from me. He, yeah, what's the, what's the one word that summarizes? No. Great, thank you for the background. Glad to hear your grace is sufficient. But what's the answer? No. No. Three times he pleaded. The verb is really strong there. And so as a group of people who carry these laments with us, Not all of them are dealt with immediately or if ever. Some of us have walked with mental illness a long time. Some of us have walked in difficult marriages for a long time. Some of us have walked in the disappointment of dreams that have not turned out the way we wanted them to for a long time. And so we want to be a community that learns how to lament and carry each other's sorrow well. And so we just want to talk about what that looks like. All right, so... When we ask the question, God, why haven't you answered this, right? I'm assuming none of us want the things on that list. None of us are stoked that those things are in our lives. And I would imagine at least, uh, at least a few of us have prayed more than three times for those things to be taken away, correct? So how do we then understand this? And when we ask the question, okay, God, why aren't you answering? All right, so there are two really bad answers And there's one really good answer, all right? So let's do the two bad answers first, all right? I feel like I'm on Family Feud. The number one bad answer for why God doesn't always answer our prayers is, are you ready? Oh, and by the way, this is horribly controversial, what I'm about to say, all right? Christians disagree with this all the time. So I'm gonna state it like it's true because I think it is. Obviously, I wouldn't teach it. But the goal isn't for you to agree with me. The goal is that you're provoked into your own study, right? The goal is to provoke curiosity and conversation. So I'm gonna state these things and give a little justification for them. Um, but some of you are gonna be like, ooh, that's, that's, 
that's a little controversial. Yes, um, Jesus was known for this, but, um, you know. And if you have emails, we have a, a guy named Kevin whose job it is specifically to answer all your questions. So, and he's not here. Uh, so it'll be great. So bad answer. Bad answer, number one, about why God doesn't answer our prayers uh, and why we have to live in lament is, bad answer number one, ready? It is God's will. Ooh, yeah, yep. Ellen's shaking her head at me. Oh, no. Oh, oh yes, Ellen, yes, I did. Because what we do is we take this verse right here and this beautiful example of Jesus coming before the Father and begging the Father, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. And then, of course, we know Jesus goes uh, to the cross, and, um, and that was the Father's will. The problem is that as Americans, what we do with a passage like this is we just, we, we'll, we'll pray for somebody's healing, we'll pray for some, something we really want, something we're desperate for, um, but we have to ha- hedge our bets. Like, we can't be totally full of, like, for, you know, courage and forthrightness with God. So we'll just say, okay, God, but whatever your will is, your will be done. But then we mistakenly assume that whatever happens is what God willed. And that's not always the case. What the, the, the picture the Bible presents is that earth is a cosmically contested space that other wills are being done on earth. And that that is why we can't assume that everything that happens is God's will. So if somebody is, is laying and dying in the hospital, I mean, from Jesus we realize God's will is flourishing. God's will is human thriving. God's will is Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. But God's will isn't specifically that each and every one of us suffer some horrible death wrestle through mental illness or loneliness. It's not God's will. And there's this thing that happens in Christian circles where we just assume anything that happens on the earth is what God wanted to happen. And the whole Bible shouts against that. Why in the world would Jesus invite us to ask God, right? God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven if God's will was already being done on earth. And why is it? That Jesus speaks three times in the book of John of uh, the enemy, this being called Ha-Satan, the Satan, the accuser. He calls him the prince of this world, and the word prince is the word archon, which means like the highest regional official. Paul says in Colossians that there, there is at work in the world a dominion, a kingdom of darkness. Paul calls this Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air, In Corinthians, the God of this age, John writes, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So I realize this is disputable in Christian circles. But I don't think we're given, unless God specifically says, I did this for this, we are not given permission to draw that conclusion. That the suffering we are undergoing is specifically God's will for our lives. That God, listen, that God does not need evil to bring about his good but he's good at redeeming the evil, so much so that sometimes we think he needed the evil to do the good. But that's not the scripture's teaching. When Jesus looks out in the world, he sees an enemy. When Paul looks out in the world, he sees cosmically contested space. 
And this isn't pretend, this isn't theology, this isn't some abstract sort of philosophy. This is actually real and that people are being harmed by this adversary. So one of the things we can't say to each other when we pray, God, would you take away this mental illness? God, would you rescue this person from um, terminal illness? If God doesn't, to say, well, that must have been God's will. God's will isn't death and taxes. God's will isn't cancer and depression. And I realize this raises a whole bunch of great questions that you can ask Kevin, but we want to just start by saying what I think is a real clear teaching permeating Jesus and Paul, that God's will is the only will being done on the earth. And so we cannot specifically attribute evil to God. I think we're invited actually to repent of that. That's the first bad answer. Oh, it just must have been God's will. You know, and people will say the dumbest things like, my dad was a fisherman and at his funeral, somebody walked up and said, well, God just needed another fisher of men. You're like, what? What? You know, God just needed another angel. I mean, of all, all the dumb things to say to people, right? At death is literally when Christian cliches are the worst. We have nothing to offer but that? No, no. Death, Paul says, is the last enemy. It is not God's will for, for our lives. Okay, now if you were fired up on that one, Ellen... Bad answer number two is even worse. All right, I know, I know. Bad answer number two to the question of, hey, why isn't God taking this away? Bad answer number two is, well, you didn't have enough faith. Oh, snap! Now see, Jesus does (laughs) say some really interesting things about faith, like... Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received and it will be yours. Pretty clear, right? Or Mark 6, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He could not do any miracles in his hometown except lay, a, uh, lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed because of their lack of faith. So these, these verses and verses like them often get weaponized into if you're suffering, it is your fault. If you take two families, they both have sick children, and they both love God, they both serve God, they do all the Christian checklists. One kid is healed and the other kid dies. Very often, how you'll explain that, di- explain that difference is, well, they had more faith than the other family. And that, that has done a lot of harm throughout the history of the church. And so we could spend hours on this, but let me just kind of poke away a little bit at this. That view that if you just have enough faith and you kind of say it and, you know, believe it, that view suffers from misunderstanding what prayer is, misunderstanding who God is, misunderstanding what our role in prayer is. But one of the biggest things it does is it misconstrues what faith is. That view equates faith with psychological certainty. That if I just convince myself enough that something is true, 
that's what faith is. That I'm certain. No, no, I don't have any doubt. I'm certain that's true. Biblically, that is not even close to what faith is. Not even close. Not even remotely in the same ballpark. We confuse professing faith with having faith in America, and that is tragic for us, and so we understand faith just to mean I have to be certain about something, and God honors my certainty, which means then there's no room for doubt. If I doubt, like the verse said, it won't happen. So what is faith? Well, faith is really an interesting concept. Faith means fidelity. Faith means allegiance. Faith in Hebrews, is living into the substance of the kingdom, even though you can't see it. Faith is adopting the reality of the kingdom, even though it's not fully here yet. Faith, faith is a relational word. Faith is not agreeing with some abstract set of principles. In fact, let's look at the Apostles' Creed for a second. All right, let's compare two people. Both affirm this very historical creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and so on. Imagine two different people who affirm this. One of them is loving and generous and self-sacrificial, one of them is, is faithful in their marriage. One of them is incredible as a parent. One of them works for justice. One of them is completely and utterly selfless. And let's say there's person number two, who's the exact opposite of all those things. Selfish, arrogant, condescending, mean, divisive, quarrelsome, condemning, angry, antagonistic. But both of them affirm that creed. My question for you, biblically, is do they share the same faith? What's that? Justy Bear? Okay, you know some of these answers, okay? You don't get to participate. Oh, okay. No, my wife is right. No, they don't share the same faith. Now, if you're immediately like, oh, but hold on, they both believe the same things. You've misunderstood what belief is. Belief is not affirming that. Belief is living as if that were true. And so the problem we have in our churches is that you can affirm that all you want and be a horrible person and call yourself a follower of Christ. And we associate then, well then if you just have enough faith, and faith means mental certainty, you're good. That's not at all what faith is. In fact, we can distinguish, philosophers distinguish, between public convictions, which are things that I want to make sure other people think I believe. Okay, so they're, they're public. I want other people to think I believe these things. Social media is full of these, right? I can stand against racism and then be horrible in my thoughts, but as long as people know that I put the right post up, I'm good. Right? We call that virtue signaling. Totally performative. It has nothing to do with what we really think. 
Politicians are full of this. Preachers are often full of this too. Present company accepted. So public convictions are the things I want to make sure other people think I believe. Private convictions are the convictions that I sincerely think I believe, but turn out to be illusory. So have you ever been in a dating relationship where you're like, dude, we were so in love, and then you realize like six months down the road, you were not so in love? In the moment, you were sure you were in love, correct? But were you? It's like Peter saying, dude, I'm never going to deny you. And then literally within a few hours, Peter was convinced he was not going to deny Jesus. But that, that wasn't a true conviction, right? So public is what I want you to think I believe. Private is what I think I believe. And they, then they distinguish between core convictions. What I actually believe is determined not by what I say, but by what I do. So how will you know if I love my wife? Is it because I tell you? I mean, what if I announce, I love her, I believe in her, we're married, here's the ring, but I'm mean, condescending, shaming, awful. Do I love my wife? No. Not even remotely. Exactly. Oh, I'll, can I answer it? Huh? Hello? Can't come to the phone right now. I'm preaching. So... Oh my goodness. So, so in the Christian community, we confuse these three. What I say I believe, what I think I believe, and what I really believe. So we think faith in America has to do with the first two. What I say and what I think I believe. And what Jesus is talking about is the third one. Faith has a role. No question. When you are aligned with Christ and his purposes, when you are immersed in his character, when you are surrendered and submitted to the work of his kingdom in and through us, ask away. But trying to convince yourself that you believe something that you're secretly doubting, God's not into our pretending, right? So bad answer number one, it's all God's will. Whatever happens to you turned out to be God's will. That's not true. Not true. Not true. Secondly, whatever happened, well, if it didn't go the way you wanted it, it was because you didn't have enough faith. Now again, I know this raises so many questions. We could spend hours, hours talking about these things. But I want to get to the third answer, the right one. Are you ready? This is a big deal. This is a big deal. All right? The answer to why it is that a specific prayer is not answered is simply this. I don't know. That's your answer. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. There it is. We do know. Some of you are horribly disappointed at the buildup. Here's what we do know. We know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is good. And we know that evil really is evil. And we know that God brings good out of evil. But as to why he does not remove a lament from your life, none of us are in a position to hazard a guess. The world is infinitely more complex. That's the point of the book of Job. Right? Job's wondering about the causation between my righteousness and my suffering. And God, when he shows up, is just like, bro, you don't even understand the hippopotamus. <laughs> so, that's a summary. You don't even have to read the book. That's kind of where it's going. But in an ancient way, that's the point. 
we don't know. And in our American, enlightened, Western desire to know, we do so much harm to each other. We blame God or we blame the sufferer. And instead, I mean, could it be God's will? Well, sure. Could it be that I'm somehow in disobedience? Well, sure. But do we know? We don't. So when you read sentences like the sentences we just read, what can we say to each other? We just simply say we don't know. And instead of offering answers, we offer presents. Not Christmas presents, kids, just to be clear, we'll do that. But think about what we're invited into. And, and again, this is less a sermon and more of just a blog. Um, <laughs> you know, we're not sitting in a text, but it's so important. Think about our options. So we're all sitting with disappointment, all of us. And we have several ways to deal with that. One option is that we can just escape, numb, medicate, right? We can distract ourselves into oblivion. There are so many different ways that we can remove the feelings and run from them and numb them. Great. That's option one. That's the Las Vegas option. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, evidently. That's the Vegas option. Option number two, beyond escape, is to pretend. That's the church option. Real Christian people wouldn't be disappointed in their marriages. That's not what biblical marriage is. Come on. Real Christian parents would never be disappointed in their kids or kids and their parents. Real Christian people would never doubt God's goodness in the midst of a terminal diagnosis, right? And thank God the Bible so argues against all that nonsense with so much honesty about the reality of life in a fallen world. So yes, the option is we can escape, for sure. And we lamed a lot of escapes up there. We can pretend, and thankfully that whole exercise was an exercise against pretending. Or the third option is the one from the Dos Equis guy. Stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs> Jesus' way of saying this, I know that's horrible. Jesus' way of saying this is keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. Don't run from the disappointment. But lament is just grief turns Godward. All right, that's all that is. And so we're sitting in disappointment, and the temptation is to run from it, to minimize it, to pretend, or whatever. And the invitation of God is to, to, to sit in it and to cry out, prayer works, prayer does stuff in the world, and God answers. No question, Jesus so clearly teaches this. But I don't always, I, I don't always get why and when and how and which. I don't always get that. So the invitation is that we just keep staying thirsty. God, come, God, come, God, come, God, come. And that, that weakness drives us to him in ways nothing else would. And I know that's a cliched answer, my friends, but it actually turns out to be what lament is. A community of people who carry each other's sorrows well together. There's this Jewish practice that we love, and it's, you have to really make sure you pronounce it correctly. It's called the sitting shiva. Yep. Shiva means seven. And it's, it, it's even today, when we were in Israel, um, it's still practiced. Back in Jesus' day, when, when Jesus comes across Mary and Martha after Lazarus has died, that's what they're doing in their house. The whole community shows up to the house of the bereaved. 
and sits there for seven days. They do the cleaning, the cooking, all of the housework, and then they're just there. They don't, they're not answering, they're not offering their profound thoughts, they're literally just present. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. If, if, if the bereaved want to talk, they talk. Or they sit in silence. But, but the bereaved person is not alone. And then depending on how close the relationship is, it can go from seven days to two weeks to 30 days. It's beautiful. Because what it's saying is, listen, I don't have answers, but I do, I can sit with you and see and witness your sorrow. I read of a village in Austria. What a great sentence that begins, you know, a village in Austria. That when someone uh, in the little village lost a family member, everyone in the village would go and they would rearrange something outside of their house so that when the bereaved woke up the next day, everyone had acknowledged the world was different. Because for those of you that have lost people, the thing that is the worst is that you just step outside and everything is just as it was. No one, no one sees it. No one stops. No one has recognized we've just lost somebody. And so in those two small pictures, this is what the church gets to do. We get to be present without cliches and answers. We don't know. And so we sit. And we also witness the reality of our grief and our sorrow. When my wife and I, um, and I've told you about sweet Seth, our, he is 12, he's Down syndrome, we talk about it all the time. But we don't talk often about the, the day we found out he had Down syndrome. We, my wife had two, and I had two kids, my wife had two. I partnered significantly. And we were hesitating on a third kid because um, we were, for lots of reasons I won't get into, we were specifically worried about having a child with Down syndrome. We were specifically nervous about that. That one thing. So, shockingly, oh hey, three months before he's born, you have a child with Down syndrome. And I have to just be honest with you, we weren't exceptionally thrilled in that moment. We were grieving, we were angry, we were hurt. That was not the family we wanted. You know, all we'd seen is a diagnosis. We hadn't met him. And so we were crushed. And, and there were people that could not receive the fact that we were disappointed. I mean, there was a woman that has two typical kids who wrote us and just said, hey, there are worse things than having a child with Down syndrome. I'm like, well, how do you know? I mean, what an awful thing to say. But there was another friend, Angela. And there is Angela back there, but this was a different one, although I'm sure that Angela would do the same thing. Who, when she found out, the night we found out, just burst into our home, didn't wait for an invitation, and enveloped my wife, and just said, I'm sorry. And it's not fair. And that was it. Just sat with her, and I... Can I just tell you, like, that meant so much to us. Because we couldn't take it away. We knew we had to deal with it, and we knew God was going to redeem it, and he has. But in that moment, we didn't need someone coaching us out of our grief. We needed just somebody sitting with us in it. So there's our list, brothers and sisters. I mean, that's some really heavy stuff. 
And so we want to be a community that carries sorrow well together, right? We put off pretending, and we're kind, and we're gentle, and we're present. And we do this not because we want to be good people, but that's, that's we're imitating Jesus in the midst of this, right? We're going to take the bread and the cup now. And the description of Jesus that is so uh, amazing to me is that he is a man well acquainted with sorrows. All the, all the you know, vagaries of human life were stacked against him. And so today I just thought we would sit a bit in that lament posture. We're going to move on next week to Christmas. But it just seemed like there was another something to say after reading these. Saying, okay, so how do we live together in the midst of our disappointments? Let's, and let's start by just stopping pretending that we don't have any. But beyond that, how does Jesus meet us here? And so we do, we do pray like crazy. We have walls around the room, these little stations where people write down prayer requests and we pray for them. Because prayer does stuff, absolutely. But we also live in this sort of defiant kind of hope. Not a cliched hope, but it's the hope that represents the bread and the cup, that God somehow takes what was the awfulest thing to ever happen and he turns it into something beautiful. So today... Let's take the bread and the cup together. You're more than welcome to just get up whenever you'd like and go to the stations, write prayer requests, or do whatever. But we just want to be and grow into that kind of community that carries each other's disappointments well. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Um, It is such an honor to be a part of this community and to grow in awareness and learning and into the recognition of like the heavy stuff we all carry together. And so Father, we are grateful for your kindness and your tenderness, and we just pray very specifically that today you would draw near to the brokenhearted. That you'd be a father and mother to those without parents, that you would be what we cannot be for each other. And so God, thank you. We turn our affections towards you and music, just to be reminded afresh of how good you are. Help us to truly believe that, God, not just with our words, but to the depths of us, we pray. Amen.